Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as you know, St. Andrew's Scotland is famous for at least two things, its golf course and its university. This year is the 29th time that the old course at St. Andrew's has hosted the British Open, more than any other golf course, but still that only happens about every five years, usually in years that end with five or zero, like 2000, 2005, 2010, and 2015. So I conceived this Cloister Walk sermon series over a year ago, so I want you to notice the meticulous and intricate planning I had to do to preach about St. Andrews the same day they're playing golf there. Actually, that's not true. This was a complete accident. But I just want you to know that if you live a righteous life, God will take care of you in small ways like that. (laughs) Games where grown men in short pants use sticks to hit balls at targets are almost as old as the human race. But golf as we know it was probably invented in Scotland and possibly at St. Andrews. So if St. Andrews is not necessarily the birthplace of golf, it is at least the home of golf. They've been playing golf at St. Andrews since the early 15th century. And from the beginning, Scotsmen were so obsessed with golf that in 1457, King James II banned golf because his soldiers were playing so much of it that they'd abandoned their archery practice. So James's soldiers could hit a goose feather ball 300 yards with a stick but they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with an arrow from 15 feet. Thankfully, in 1502, James IV, an avid golfer, reinstated the game, and it's been with the Scots ever since. I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. Not very far, but somewhere. As you've noticed this weekend, the old course at St. Andrews is famous for hurricane-force winds, sideways rain, merciless rough, and inescapable bunkers. The 13th hole has bunkers aptly named the coffins because they're in the middle of the fairway, right where you want to land your ball to have a good shot at the green, but if you land there, you will be dead. That's the 13th hole. You go from there to the 14th where there is a bunker called hell. First you die on the 13th, then you go to hell on the 14th. In the 2000 Open, Jack Nicklaus, who was good enough, by the way, to win 18 major championships, ended up with a quintuple bogey on 14. And since 14 is a par 5, that means that Jack Nicholas once penciled a 10 into his scorecard for the Open. Take heart, all you duffers out there. But St. Andrews, of course, also has a university founded in 1410, which makes it the third oldest university in the English-speaking world. And you can probably guess the two that are older. Famous alumni include Benjamin Franklin, John Witherspoon, the Presbyterian preacher and president of Princeton University, and signer of the Declaration of Independence, and of course, William and Catherine, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. But when it comes to the shaping of American Protestantism, by far St. Andrew's most famous and important alumnus, if not the sexiest, is John Knox. After Martin Luther, the beer-drinking German, and Henry VIII, the mead-quaffing Tudor, and John Calvin, 
the wine-sipping Frenchman, John Knox, the whiskey-swilling Scot, was probably the most important figure in the Protestant Reformation. Man, that guy had a mouth on him. His reservoir of vituperations was vast and bottomless. Here's an example of one of his more pointed sermon titles. He called it, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. The monstrous women being, not of, of course the entire feminine race, but the female French royals, among them Mary Queen of Scots, who tried to turn his manly, macho homeland of Scottish lairds in kilts, plaids, and war paint into a French-speaking, burgundy-sipping, escargot-eating, knee-socks, and brocade-wearing Roman Catholic province of the king at Versailles. He was gloomy, difficult, unyielding, and sharp-tongued, and yet he almost single-handedly converted his homeland into what would eventually become known as Presbyterianism, and it was his disciples, Knox's disciples, who carried this newfangled ecclesiology across the Atlantic in tiny leaky boats and planted it first on the eastern shore of Maryland, where it took deep roots in rich soil and then spread from there like kudzu south to the Carolinas and north to Pennsylvania and eventually sowed the seeds of bitter discontent with King George's taxation without representation, which is why in London they called the American Revolution the Presbyterian Rebellion. More than half of George Washington's soldiers were Presbyterians, and when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, every colonel in the colonial army but one was a Presbyterian elder. That's the legacy of John Knox, the Presbyterian contribution to philosophy and politics, a towering distrust of centralized authority, a suspicion of kings and queens and bishops, this intense egalitarianism that finally leads to the thought that all human beings are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among people, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Okay, sure, Jefferson was an Episcopalian, but he was thinking like a Presbyterian when he wrote those words. And this is how you get from Medici Pope Leo X in Rome to the Declaration of Independence. Step one, Luther in Wittenberg. Step two, Calvin in Geneva. Step three, Knox in Edinburgh. And step four, Jefferson in Philadelphia. Straight line. John Knox was born in the early 16th century, 16 miles from Edinburgh to a farmer and his wife. He was a Roman Catholic priest, of course. What else could you be if you were a clergyman early in the 16th century? But then he fell in early with his proto-Presbyterians and was a rather radical reformer, so radical that for a while he was sentenced to a slave galley pulling 18-foot oars through the water for 19 months and then banished to the continent where he spent time in France and Germany and finally in Kelvin's Geneva. And he was so enchanted with Kelvin's innovations in politics and theology that he called Kelvin's Geneva the most perfect school of Christianity the world has ever seen. And then Knox takes Kelvin's innovations to Edinburgh where he gives them a Scottish brogue. 
and he invents things like sessions and presbyteries and synods and general assemblies so that like a country is governed by city, county, state, and federal governments, the church is governed by ascending sizes of governing bodies as well. And in Edinburgh, the gloomy Scot commences a long, loud war of words with the loyal Catholic, Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots. John Knox calls her Satan's sister. Diplomacy was not his best thing. And he might have been one of the few males in the British Isles who was not utterly smitten by Mary. She was bright, she was witty, she was drop-dead gorgeous, fair-haired, light-complected, slender, tall, 5 feet 11, a killer body. When they make the movie, they're going to ask Nicole Kidman to play Mary, Queen of Scots. Five times, Knox marches over to Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh to tell her brazenly exactly what she's doing wrong. And one time Mary looks out her window and watches John Knox marching up the road to Holyrood Palace and she says to her servant girls, oh my God, I would rather see an entire battalion of enemy soldiers coming at me rather than this gloomy Scot all by himself. And so he comes up with this representative form of church government, this republican form of church government. No bishops, ever. Bishops mean kings, and those are bad. So we make all of our decisions together because though we are deeply flawed human beings, we can make better decisions together than someone can for us who is ruling over us. And so do you hear the first faint whispers the early hints and guesses at American democracy 200 years before it's born. And when he dies at the age of 55 in 1572, a friend at his grave says, Here lieth one who in his life never feared the face of any man. That's not a bad epitaph. Never feared the face of any man or woman, even if she's Mary, Queen of Scots. So as near as I can tell, the Scots are known for five things. Whiskey, golf, bagpipes, haggis, and Presbyterians. What a dubious legacy. <laughs> Luther drank good German beer and Kelvin a smooth French burgundy, but only the Scots would give us a muscular brew that burns all the way down. Can you believe that some people play golf for fun? I just never got it. I mean, either you're chosen, you're predestined to golf, or you're not. I wasn't. My son was. One day he sees me loading my golf clubs into the car. I play golf at Jay and Sally Stanley's golf course in Michigan. And he says, can I come? And so I load him into my electric cart and we play nine holes of golf and he's mesmerized by everything I'm doing, even though I'm not doing it very well. And then a little while later, he watches me pile my golf clubs into the car once again and he says, Dad, can I be your caddy? He's five years old. I look him up and down. I said, Michael, you're like three foot nine. I don't think you can carry my clubs. And he says, we'll take a cart. You know, I am skeptically again. I said, well, okay, that means you're going to have to keep my scorecard. He says, I can do that. 
And then I look at him again and I say, well, okay, Michael, how much is nine plus eight plus seven? He thinks about this for a minute and he says, five. I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> Whiskey, golf, bagpipes, haggis, and Presbyterians. Still, there's something beautiful about this St. Andrew's legacy. Here, here lieth one who in his life never feared the face of man. Because John Knox feared Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus was his king. And he would have loved those words of St. Paul in his letter to the Colossians. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things invisible and visible, all thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, all things created through him and for him. And John Knox would have lived by those acclamations, preaching his biting sermons among the towering kings and queens of Europe, Mary in Scotland, Elizabeth in England, Charles in France, and Philip in Spain, and William in Holland. And he would have remembered that Paul acclaimed this rustic carpenter from Nazareth with such grandiosities within earshot of Emperor Nero, the most powerful man in the world. When Christ is king in your life, you no longer kneel before puny princes, pygmy principalities, or paltry powers. All thrones, all dominions, all powers and principalities are unseated. When Christ is king in your life, you no longer fear the face of man or woman. And that's not a bad way to live. And we learned it from that crotchety Scott. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.